You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. In India, I met farmers whose crops have been literally washed away by historic flooding. In America, I have witnessed unprecedented droughts in California. In Greenland and in the Arctic, I was astonished to see that ancient glaciers are rapidly disappearing well ahead of scientific predictions. All that I have seen and learned on my journey has absolutely terrified me. So the question now is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. And how we answer will have a profound impact on the world that we leave behind, not just to you, but to your children and to your grandchildren. As a president, as a father, and as an American, I'm here to say we need to act. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. All right, welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And this is Jim Winepress. Hey Jim, welcome. Welcome to, glad to have hey. you back. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me back. The first time was so much fun. I was very excited to hear that I could uh, make a, a second appearance. Yeah, no, it, it, it's great to have you. Uh, just for the other listeners, the, this week Angie had a family emergency pop up. It's her extended family. You know, her immediate family's fine, but she had to drop everything, jump on an airplane. So I, you know, it's kind of scrambling for guests this week and I know, we had Jim on a few weeks ago, so well-spoken, so knowledgeable, and I had to beg him to come on. So thank you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really had to beg me. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, it was great. It was great having you. So real quick, you know, where are you guys at the Naked Mole Rats? You know, at Seneca Park Zoo, you're getting your Naked Mole Rats. We had your interview, you know, talking about them, but we talked about a lot of different animals that you worked with. So what's the update with the Naked Mole Rats? I'm very excited to announce that they are on site. So we have uh, two wonderful colonies of naked mole rats, um, and they're currently in quarantine. And that sounds pretty intense, but it's actually uh, routine practice in zoos and aquariums. When new animals uh, arrive at the facility, they're kept separate from the rest of the um, animals that are living there just to keep an eye on them, make sure they're healthy and everything is uh, running smoothly with them. So they aren't out for the public to see yet, but they are they are doing well. And in my eyes, they're adorable. So I'm I'm a happy guy right now. Yeah, yeah. Do do you guys know when they're going to go out on display when visitors can see them? Uh, hopefully by the end of this summer. Uh, they're they're building on that new construction area as fast as they can. It's just a whole lot of work. I mean, construction is complicated on its own, but when you're building it for for large animals like giraffe, rhino, mm-hmm. it just 
it's such an undertaking. So we're on schedule for the end of the summer. Cool, cool. Yeah, and you know, doing animals in quarantine is just that's that's just good animal husbandry. You know, things we would teach is make sure they're healthy and and everything's set, and then before they can go out and people can see them. But yeah, that's cool. I can't wait to to check back in with you and see how they're doing. So let's jump into the the kind of the topics of the week, and you know. I couldn't really find a lot of feel good stories. I do have one feel good story coming up, but this one came across and I, I had to talk about it. And Angie reminds me we're not climate scientists. We're animal scientists. And I understand mm-hmm. that, but you know, I argue with Angie. I'm like, this has such an impact on the environment and ecology, right? I mean, the climate, where we're going with that. So, so Jim, this week I, I read this study. It's, it's in nature. And for the listeners, again, nature is like the number one scientific publication. Nature and science are, are the top two. And so when nature publishes something, it's pretty serious. Right. And the title of this study, and, I, and I'll make sure to definitely post it on the show notes, is a long-term decline of the Amazon carbon sink. Now, Jim, this will put you to sleep reading this thing. <laughs> I'll be honest <laughs> with you. It's... Yeah, it's a little dry, but I, I, you know, I was able to, to, to kind of dig into it and, and look into it. And basically what they're talking about is the Amazon is declining and this is outside of deforestation. So I want to put that up front. We already know that the Amazon's being, you know, cleared quickly. You know, mm-hmm. estimates are what 80% of the Amazon's going to be gone by the end of the, the, the century. So this is outside of that. Oh, geez. And that's what. Yeah, that's what was scary about this article. And the authors on this study are from all over the world. So you're talking the United States, North America, South America, Europe, a lot of UK scientists in here. So it was a big collaborative study that's been going on for a number of years. So one of the things I, you know, they, they talk about right up front is one of the largest carbon sinks on earth is the Amazon. It is huge. And in there it stores you know, they talk about the Amazon storing about 150 to 200 petagrams of carbon. Now, Jim, I don't know what the heck a petagram is. <laughs> I don't know. Either. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. It's, it's 10 to the 15th. So I had to do a little maths. You know, again, here in New Zealand, they call it maths with an S. Uh, and that equaled 400 trillion pounds. Wow. So. Yeah, that's how much carbon is sequestered in the Amazon. Okay. So with climate change, scientists that, that study this, not just climate, but trees and all that stuff, there were some predictions that a rise in carbon would actually help fertilize trees and we might actually see a, a, a kind of a boom in plants. And so, yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense. Like that's their fertilizer. That's what makes them grow, right? Mm-hmm. So they were saying, okay, so we did this long-term study for 30 years and looking at the effects of the increase in carbon in the atmosphere. Now, just to kind of sum up what they found is trees actually did get bigger. I mean, they, 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 they got bigger faster due to, you know, some of this carbon in the atmosphere. The problem is they die earlier. So it's due to the accelerated yeah, growth rate. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really crazy. I was like, I did not expect that. You know, I, th- I thought this was more of like, Hey, you know, they're, 
deforestation, we're losing this amount of carbon sink. No, it, it's these plots of land that are untouched. They looked at how the the changing climate's affecting the trees and the bushes and everything. So the trees got bigger, more branching, accelerated stem recruitment they talk about, but they died quicker and faster. So it was like, wow. So the, the, the bottom line of this study, just to kind of sum it up, because I, I could sit here and talk about it all day. <laughs> the stuff just, oh, yeah, it's amazing when you look in the science behind it, is the Amazon live biomass has decreased by 30% in 30 years. So it's about 10% every decade that, you know, yeah, the trees were growing faster, but they're dying quicker. There's not a lot of new growth right away. And so you're losing about, we've lost about 30% of their ability to sequester carbon. And so that has, I mean, that's having a huge effect as far as the ability to, to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, kind of slow down this, this global warming effect we're seeing. Then as these trees have died and they're laying there and it's slowly releasing carbon, it takes a long time. So that hasn't hit the atmosphere yet. That's going to take a few decades and that's going to produce about 3.8 petagrams of new carbon, which is, oh, I figured it out. I think 3.8 was, uh, it was about, I think 10 trillion pounds of carbon. Uh Yeah, I know. It's insane. The math, you're just like, oh my God. So basically, overall, the the Amazon is losing its ability or, you know, its decreased ability in to sequester carbon in the atmosphere. It's, it's really alarming. It's really alarming. So, you know, you can only see how that's going to affect uh, climate around the world. Yeah, and you don't want to mistake the news that trees are growing faster as everything's okay or Everything, yeah, every, yeah. you know, it's catching up with itself because they're dying quicker as a result of growing quicker. And then, you know, there aren't replacement plants, trees to, repl- to, you know, grow in their place. Then the, the whole ecosystem's thrown up. And like you said, in terms of holding that carbon, they play such a huge role in, um, the ecosystem and our climate. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's horrific. It's horrific. It's, you know, again, one of the goals of our podcast and, you know, we're trying to develop part, partnerships out there with some of these conservation organizations is carbon, you know, doing carbon neutral lives, leading carbon neutral lives. Mm-hmm. I think the more people that do that, you know, the, the better it will, will be. And we can kind of offset some of the, this that we're seeing. So anyways, sorry, I didn't want to start off with bad news, <laughs> but it's, again, we got to speak the truth. We've got to put that out there and inform and educate. So anyways, What'd you find? <laughs> All right. So uh, on a very different note from that, um, actually, the, the, the research um, and the studies that I picked for this week, most of them are, are marine animal or ocean related, which wasn't on purpose. Um, I do have that love for that, <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff. Yes. But uh, I got some interesting stuff. So first, we're going to talk about a really interesting study with manatees taking place uh, at the Moat Marine Lab in Sarasota, Florida. I originally came mm-hmm. across an article about it and then realized that the... A senior aquarium biologist who's taking a leading role in this. She's a wonderful person. Her name's Kat Burner. She replied to me when I reached out for more information. Her and I actually interned together, you know, before our, our actual career started. So she's doing really cool things. And I definitely wanted to get this information out there. So she works with manatees. And I know you guys just did, um, you know, some talks on manatees. So my interest is yeah, already yeah. And I looked at these two. So they are home to Hugh and Buffett. 
And I don't think okay. people realize how big mantis are. Uh, both, both, they're huge. Yeah, yeah, both these males. Let's see. It says Hughes almost thirteen hundred pounds, and Buffett's almost eighteen hundred pounds, and they're each of them are wow. around ten feet long. That's a very, very large uh, animal. Huge, yeah, huge. <laughs> and what they've been doing is they have been trained to wear a heart rate monitor and tail belt in order to collect data on their heart rate changes and swim speed uh, while doing different behaviors. And they trained these two manatees to go do specific tasks and then return to a big metabolic dome to breathe in. This dome, it's, it's crazy. This huh. dome is connected to an oxygen analyzer, which measures the oxygen exchange for each behavior completed. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And they've done this with other species, but this is the first time I believe they've done it with manatees. Um, mm-hmm. the, the values that they get from this are calculated and they give them an idea of how much energy the animals are using to complete these different tasks. And all the tasks they've been trained to, to do, you know, using upper condition, positive reinforcement, um, replicate what they'd be doing in the wild. And so far, they've focused on swimming, both fast and slow speed, resting and diving. And because they want to get this information about swimming, uh, they actually have an underwater treadmill, basically. It's really oh, cool. Yeah. They, the machine that they use for the swimming behavior is a swim flume. It's built by a company called... Endless pools, which I wonder if this company ever thought they'd be making an underwater treadmill, um, I, treadmill I for manatees. I know, I know, that's awesome. <laughs> and it goes in and comes out of the exhibit um, when they need to use it, so it's not a, per- a permanent attachment. Uh, it hangs in the water, rests on the edge of the exhibit wall um, with a deck mount. The pool pulls water through the bottom of the apparatus and then creates a current that shoots out of the front grating. And they can control the speed via remote and manually adjust it based off of what speed they want the manatees to swim at. Which is oh, that's amazing. Such, such cool stuff. Uh, no, it is. It is. Yeah. And during the winter and the summer, where obviously the temperature, the, everything is pretty different from one another, they'll do the study five days a week. And the goal is to help researchers better understand the manatee's metabolism and then share the information with other manatee rehab facilities across the country. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's uh, that's amazing. It, it's so we just did a, I just did an, an interview yesterday with an expert that we're going to release in a couple of weeks. He's actually a snake expert, pretty well known. Cool. And he, we were talking about the difference between basic science and applied science. Mm-hmm. So basic research is we do things like that. Like, you know, people are probably wondering why the heck would we want to know the metabolic rate of manatees? Well, last week when we talked about them and their, their diets, they have a very slow metabolism, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting a basic understanding or conducting basic science, we can then turn around and apply that to, you know, some applied work and applied science so we can better manage these animals. So that study sounds phenomenal. That, that is cool. That is cool. And, and yeah, and this is just a perfect example of how, you know, zoological facilities, zoos and aquariums can utilize the animals they care for in terms of helping their their counterparts in the wild. It's just, it's just amazing thing that Hugh and Buffett are hopefully contributing, um, you know, to the animals, the, the manatees. Uh, this is just the perfect example of how animals living under human care, you know, who act as ambassadors for their species can directly help their wild counterparts. Hugh and Buffett are doing a real good service in teaching us about the needs of manatees, not only because this is a species that was once really negatively affected uh, by humans. This is the West Indian manatee we're talking about. But because just based on, you know, the popularity of Florida, um, the people wanting to be down there, these these animals will always live in close proximity to human populations, you know, and to 
manage that population is so important to know what their needs are. It is. It is. And, you know, Jim, and I'm an outsider, right? So I don't get paid. My paycheck doesn't come from any zoo. Honestly, I don't get a paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) Not right now. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, But, you know, I'm not paid by a zoo. I, I barely worked with the Santa Fe teaching zoo, and that was an educational component. So, you know, I, I did have a couple of people reach out to us and, and thank us for, you know, how Angie and I kind of talk about zoos and aquariums and defend the work that they do, because I still see it in social media and people, you know, like how horrific zoos are. And I always caveat that with accredited zoos and aquariums are the ones you want to pay, you know, go to and pay mm-hmm. money to and support. Because they're under strict, strict guidelines. And it was some story about some sideshow zoo in South Carolina. I think it was in Myrtle Beach, how horrific it was. And, and people were really going after zoos. And it, I'm going to jump to my next story. I, I was going to talk about the feel good one. I'll Go save ahead. that one for the end, but, but this one will kind of make the case because, you know, zoos are doing such critical work in conservation and endangered species. And this is from a scientist perspective. This is me with a global perspective on what's going on out there. We're, you know, in the sixth mass extinction, we're seeing drastic reductions in, in wild spaces. I just talked about the Amazon is falling apart. You know, animals live there and, you know, AZA accredited or the accrediting institutions around, you know, in Europe and Australia and here in New Zealand, you know, very, very strict. These animals are very, very well taken care of. But the research that comes out of there Mm -hmm. is so critical for so many species in the wild. So this next article that, that I read and it came across my desk this week, and this is uh, out of a paper out of the UK, and the title is Chimps and Orangutans Among Species in Danger of Being Wiped Out in Imminent Mass Extinction of Primates. And then, comma, scientists warn. So it goes on, the subtitle is, Countries Home to Two-Thirds of World's Apes, Monkeys, and Lemurs Will See Populations Pushed to Breaking Point by End of the Century. And what the article is is summing up is an international panel of, of primate experts are predicting that two-thirds of the world's mm-hmm. apes, you know, great apes, monkeys, and lemurs will be or will either go extinct or they're just like pretty much almost extinct by the end of the century. So this is people that, yeah, these are people that work with these animals. They're out, out there in the wild doing things like that. So the article kind of focuses in on four countries. And it's interesting. You know, they say two-thirds of the world's apes, monkeys, and lemurs. And these four countries house two-thirds of all primates on Earth, and they are Brazil, the Madagascar, Indonesia, and Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC. So they house most of the primates. So Brazil, you're talking about New World monkeys, right? right? Madagascar is the lemurs. Indonesia, Old World monkeys, the great apes, you have the orangutans down there. And the DRC, you have chimpanzees, gorillas, and some old world monkeys there. So in those four countries, 60% of the primates in there are threatened with extinction. So this panel said, you know, Brazil's going to lose 80% of its habitat by 20, by the year 2100. So 80%, 80% gone. Indonesia, 70%. Madagascar, 60%, and the DRC, 30%. 
And again, basically palm oil, mm-hmm. you know, is a big one and sugar cane is the other one. Um, you know, it makes me think too in the, in the, the carbon sink, I, I kind of looked into, well, agriculture, some people argue, Hey, agriculture comes in, plants crops, plants grass. That's a carbon sink, right? You would think, you know, and it right. is, it is, it comes in there and it, mm-hmm. it does suck up carbon. Yeah. But the carbon inputs outweigh any benefit to the climate. All right. So you actually, so, so again, the system's thrown off. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're pouring more carbon. You know, it's, it's right. not less. It's not only are you taking away a carbon sink, but then to plant the, that, those crops, to collect those crops, the, the fuel, you know, even if you put cattle on there, methane production, things like that. So and I actually have an article that I'm going to link that talks about you know, agriculture production versus, you know, natural environment. So anyways, the, the wild's disappearing. That's the problem. And so this panel is saying we have to wake up, we have to do something, or we're going to suffer this mass extinction of, of, of our closest relatives. So again, not the, the best news, but I will link again the palm oil app out of the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. So be sure to go in there, the iOS or the Android, download that, use that when you can, when you're shopping. Mm-hmm. And, you know, consumers are a big part of this. They need to be part of the solution. And so, you know, please take action and let's hope we can save some of these uh, relatives of ours. And and it's, and even though, you know, gorilla, orangutan, um, chimpanzee, those are all household names because, you know, they're fairly charismatic animals. Um, they just discovered a new subspecies of orangutan in 2017. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. So we by no means know yeah. everything about these animals, even though, you know, they're usually in the spotlight. Right. I think it's the Tapalui or Tapalui mm-hmm. uh, orangutan. And there's about 800 of them left. And it was just this week. It's been making the rounds on social media was that orangutan. I would say orangutan because that's the old word. The orangutan, orangutan that was going after that tractor. That was tearing down the. Oh forest. yeah, did I, see did, that? I did see that. Yeah, my, that was like yeah. every every yeah. other video on my uh, Facebook uh, stream. Yeah, is heartbreaking, heartbreaking, right? Totally heartbreaking. So, all right, I promise you, my next story <laughs> will be good, but it's, well, <laughs> it's not so. so, so you know, tragic. continuing with this theme, you know, that's a, a such a a challenge as you know an animal care professional and as a public educator, you know, we've got people coming to visit our zoo and we, we want them to have a good time. You know, it's a, it's a place for family recreation, mm-hmm. um, but it's also a place that we want uh, people to learn something at before they leave. And a lot of the times, you know, conservation statistics, information, it, it's downright depressing and you're not going to be efficient with getting your message across to people or inspiring them, um, you know, to take an active role in conservation efforts. If it's just the most depressing thing in the world and I, I don't blame them. You know, so it's, know. it's an ongoing challenge know, to be know, able I to know. find that middle ground of, I'm going to present you with some information that isn't that positive, but at the same time, you know, not all hope is lost. You know, I don't want people coming to the zoo and saying, oh no, there's the zookeeper, you know, what horrible, depressing stat or fact are they going to give me this time? You know, we don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great point too. And, and Angie and I always talk, go back and forth, you know, when we're doing our episodes and yeah, we, we try to keep it upbeat and mm-hmm. fun. Because these, these creatures are just so amazing. So we, you know, we laugh about the behavior, you know, yeah, they're, they're almost extinct folks. You know, there's only 10 left in the world, but they're so great. You know, you're right. It is. It is. Yeah. That's just transparency. It's, it's a good point. I do have a great story coming up. So it, it's good news, you know, and, and I think too, you know, with the interviews and talking to people like you, 
and the the conservation experts around the world, there are a lot of people fighting for these animals, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, the news isn't always great, but know that there's a bunch of people out there. They're they're doing this to bring you the news and say, hey, we need your help. Right. You know, so that's what we're trying to do. But yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. All right. So uh, my next news piece is another marine mammal, of course, because that's all I think about for most yeah. of the time. And I just want this to get out to listener base. Uh, there is a little bit of bias here because the person um, that's playing a big role in this is my sister. So um, be- okay. being an okay. animal nerd completely runs in our family. And um, this yeah. is the very wonderful Megan Gallopo, who is the visitor engagement training coordinator at the South Carolina Aquarium. Um, she, she worked okay. with dolphins okay. for a number of years, um, went and got her master's, um, got her work published, um, in a peer reviewed journal, which is probably one of the coolest things I think you could ever do. And, um, this is just something really neat. Um, so this actually involves a marine mammal health and environmental risk assessment that has been taking place since 2001. Um, so it's, it's regularly occurring on an annual basis. Um, and what they're trying to find out is just how healthy, the ocean along the East Coast is. Um, and it's taken place in two different locations so far. Um, and they're using the Atlantic bottlenose dolphin as a key into finding the answer to that question. And they could provide some valuable insight into the long-term human health risks because we, we are part of this earth. You know, what happens to the animals right. will eventually affect us. We, we are not separate from them. Mm-hmm. So um, this has taken place in the Indian River Lagoon um, in Florida and then also uh, right in Charleston Harbor. Okay. So um, in this study, uh, wild dolphins are secured from the water and they undergo a complete physical exam. Um, this includes a thorough examination of their physical health, you know, taking a look at their teeth, their skin, their eyes. It includes a uh, sampling of their blood and then various tissues, a small little uh, tissue sample that they can analyze. After this uh, dolphin checkup, you could call it, um, the animal's released back into their habitat. So it's let's secure this animal, get what we need, and then be on your way. And this is a huge undertaking. Um, oh, I imagine. Yeah, it's dolphins. You know, a lot of people think, you know, these are just dolphins, the clown of the sea. They're always smiling. These are just like manatees, very large, 100% yeah. muscle animals. Yes. I've worked with them too, so I, I know firsthand how muscular these animals are. And mm-hmm. they're very impressive, and they definitely deserve your respect. Mm-hmm. So it takes about 60 marine mammal professionals all together to complete um, this assessment. And... It includes um, animal care staff, trainers, lab techs, vet techs, veterinarians. Um, a lot of this has been led by, I uh, hope I'm pronouncing these names wrong, hoping I'm giving them credit, Dr. Greg uh, Bozar and Steve McCullough from the Georgia Aquarium, and then Dr. Pat Fair from Charleston's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. South Carolina Aquarium does do some work, um, partnership with NOAA, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Megan has worked in Dr. Fair's lab at NOAA's Center for Coastal Environmental Health and Biomolecular Research for the for a couple of years now. And it, it goes hand in hand with her position on the education team at the South Carolina Aquarium. And what this study does is it closely examines how disease and bottlenose dolphins are related to human activity and they provide insight into the overall health of the ecosystem. Because dolphins are apex predators. You know, they which means that they're at the top of the food chain in their habitat. And if their population is unhealthy, it can alert scientists to underlying threats in their environment. Um, and if something is affecting those dolphins, it's likely to affect other animals in the area and could even threaten us. You know, So if you're not initially concerned mm-hmm. about you know, the dolphins' well-being, you should be concerned about your own well-being because it will eventually get to us. 
And gathering mm-hmm. this data really helps scientists and environmentalists make good decisions regarding conservation and environmental management. Um, and what they found, some of the significant findings in these studies have focused on a toxin and contaminant um, that's built up in dolphin blubber. Um, dolphins are basically wrapped in this layer of blubber to help keep them warm in the cold waters. And I hope I'm pronouncing these correctly, but uh, researchers have found that almost 90% of the dolphins in the Indian River Lagoon and in Charleston waters have a high concentration of contaminants such as pesticides, um, PFCs, which stand are perfluorinated chemicals. I hope I'm pronouncing that one right. Um, and PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls. And that's built up in their, flub- in their blubber. And both those PFCs and PCBs, they're human-made. They're synthetic chemicals that are found in household items that are stain and stick resistant. So think about all the things that we have in our house, especially in the kitchen that are stain and stick resistant cookware, rugs, carpets, um, food packaging materials, as well as flame retardants and paints. So these are like every single day items for us. Uh, They end up in our local waterways from Mm -hmm. runoff and industrial plants from inadequate chemical storage and leakage. These, these toxics, and yeah, a lot of people say, you know, well, how does that get into dolphin blubber? No one's out there like injecting them with these toxins. Uh, these toxins, they find their way into the dolphin's tissues as they move up the food chain to the top predator, which are the dolphins. The accumulation of these contaminants can compromise the dolphin's immune system, which will make them more susceptible to disease. Um, they can cause cancer in the dolphins, and they also affect the reproduction. So yeah, yeah. when mothers nurse their young, they unload these toxins unknowingly from their own bodies into the developing calf. I mean, it can significantly affect the health of the developing population. And on a side note, a lot of people have no idea how um, a marine animal nurses considering their mammals and they take, mm-hmm. um, they give milk to their young dolphins have little mm-hmm. tiny frills on the side of their tongue and the babies can curl their tongue into a makeshift straw, which bait, and then they can go underneath huh. their mothers and they, that's how they get the milk out of there. And they don't, okay. they aren't born with a very strong immune system. So they're already susceptible to disease. And so this milk that's supposed to be helping them put on weight, give them nutrients, all like the stuff they need to start their lives. If there are toxins in there, um, you know, that have built up from the dolphin eating all these different animals, they have a small amount of that toxin already in them. And that baby's getting basically a toxic milkshake. Yep. And yep. It's yeah. not a good situation. No, uh, oh man, it's sorry, sorry to the listeners. This is not the most, this is not the greatest week in conservation. Oh man, no, it's you know that's such a great study and findings because you know Angie's PhD work, you know, looking at phytoestrogens and effects on reproduction and you know ungulates. We were looking at horses and rhinos, and mm-hmm. she's looking at some other species too. Uh, towards the tail end of it and you know i'll have to ask her because she was actually rachel satemeyer who she interviewed we were doing some samples or angie was a uh, black-footed ferret uh phytoestrogen levels in their blood so you know mm-hmm. i we've worked with some toxicologists at at the university of florida and one of the ones we we actually worked with she does a lot of stuff in fish and estrogens you know in the water you know, one of the things is women that that take the pill for, you know, whatever reason in their urine, high levels of estrogen that gets washed into our estuaries and rivers and things. And that has, you know, downstream effects on fish. So imagining dolphins in the sea. Now I'm like, oh, my God, I'm eating fish so much down here. <laughs> Should I be? Should I not be eating fish? That, that, uh, that's a great question. You know, there's there's so much focus 
everyone absolutely loves seafood. I I love seafood. Um, But, you know, just like with that uh, palm oil app you talked about, there is the, there are several sustainable seafood apps out there. And, you know, if, so if you you are craving some type of seafood, which I do every single week, you know, you just the way you'd utilize that palm oil app, utilize a sustainable seafood app because you'll know that you're getting something that's healthy for you and also um, sustainable for the ocean. But, yeah, I mean, no one's going to stop eating seafood anytime soon. No, no. And I'll, I'll see if I can link that in the show notes too, uh, for this week's news. The, you know, the oceans are, are, and the scientists I interviewed yesterday, we were talking about a little bit, you know, from his perspective, there is a groundswell movement, anti-plastic, you know, single use mm-hmm. plastics that is growing. So that is good. You know, again, the news this week isn't great, but there's action we can take to help support conservation you know, mm-hmm. these species. So, and the ocean health is, I'm glad, I'm so glad it's getting a lot of uh, press because that will help, you know, make change, you know, cause that's what we need to do. We need to, to make change uh, for these animals. No, and that, that's great too, that it, your story led into what we were just talking about, you know, the South Carolina aquarium, they're doing a lot of work for conservation and the conservation of dolphins. So that, that's awesome. Oh, definitely. All right. My, yeah, so my good story of the week. Well, fine, is, finally. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Is scientists discover world's first known manta ray nursery. So that's kind of a theme this week in oceans. But this was really cool. It was a really cool study that in the Gulf of Mexico, they, so scientists for the longest time couldn't figure out, you know, where are the baby manta rays? Mm-hmm. You know, these huge, Seagoing creatures. Angie and I need to do an episode on them, uh, within, you know, we've got a bunch planned, but manta rays are amazing. Mm-hmm. They're huge. They're huge, right? Well, when you're looking at them, you never see the babies or the, the adolescent ones. And they couldn't figure out where they were. So scientists from, from University of California, San Diego, they found the first known nursery in the Gulf of Mexico. Sounds cool. So. Yeah, Josh Stewart was was leading this. He's he's a PhD student in marine biology at Scripps, which is near my old hometown where I grew up in Del Mar, California. And he they found these young manta rays and they found that they're in this nursery in the Gulf of Mexico and it's just about 50 miles south of Galveston, Texas. <laughs> and what they found is is this congregation of young manta rays and it's where the shelf in the Gulf of Mexico like you know, it just starts to descend. And so that's kind of a natural feeding area for them. So they think they just kind of, you know, they eat zooplankton, other things that they just kind of sit there until they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they can kind of go out and they're big enough to kind of survive out in the ocean. But I thought it was really cool because it's again, science. Now that they know that that's there, they can look at trying to protect mm-hmm. that area. It's like the Florida or the, the flower garden banks, natural mes- marine reserve uh in the gulf of mexico so that was really cool i was like oh that's that's awesome i love science i love Mm -hmm. new discovery and here's a feel-good story and you know if they know where those animals lives begin and where adults go to reproduce Mm -hmm. then that's just like you said they have they have a better idea of their whole life cycle and then they can comprehensively provide them more protection right yeah absolutely so it's great and yeah, yeah like the the adults, uh, manta ray has like a 21 foot or six and a half meter wingspan. I mean, they're huge, 
Huge. Oh, they're beautiful creatures. Yeah. 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 yeah I got to put them on the list. I got to tell Angie, we got to put them on the list. So <laughs> there you go. Feel good story of the week. All right, cool. I, I don't, I don't want to be associated with the, the depressing episodes of all creatures <laughs> podcasts. I, I, there's got to be some feel good stuff in here. <laughs> yeah. Jim's back, folks. <laughs> oh, you no. know, oh, I'm going to skip, yeah, gonna yeah, skip yeah. this one. Yeah. <laughs> Just happened to be what was highlighted this week. So. Okay. Well, well, the, the last story that I want to cover, it's, it's not a negative one. It's a good one. Um, yeah, yeah. So researchers have discovered five new species of snail-eating mm-hmm. snakes in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting. I didn't know that there were any species of uh, snakes that specialize in eating snail until I found this. And yeah. I looked up some photos of yeah. them, and there they were some beautiful snakes. Mm-hmm. Typically, they're small, slender, and large-headed, and they're all active at night, and they're in trees. That's where most of their movement is. Um, they have these long, delicate teeth, and those at the front of the jaw, the teeth at the front, are used to seize the body of a snail. And then the lower jaw is moved far forward, and the lower teeth are used to draw the soft body of the snail <laughs> out of the shell as yeah. the jaw is retracted. That's what, I, what, a, what a specialty diet. <laughs> I know. I know. I need some of those in my garden here. Like, we have so many snails, <laughs> but there's no snakes in New Zealand, so, you know... <laughs> And I just, I always, I'm always taken by those uh, special adaptations of, of an animal, like a snake to evolve to be able to eat snails, I think is really interesting. Right. So yeah, yeah. they discovered these five new species, which is an accomplishment in itself. That's, that's really neat. And kudos to these researchers because they decided once they found these animals and did a little research on them, um, you know, where, where uh, they thrive, their habitat, that four out of the five species of these new animals are threatened with extinction due to habitat loss. Yeah. So went went like yeah. right back to that depressing information. Yeah. But this is we'll skip, this is where we'll it gets really good. <laughs> yeah, okay. So they, they 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 saw that threat and you know what? They did something really cool. They said we're going to auction off the rights to name these new species because, you know, the scientific name of the animal is a real serious undertaking and mm-hmm. it's permanent. You know, very very rarely is a scientific name the the genus and the species in Latin is that ever changed. It has to be due to new information. So it's not mm-hmm. something, something symbolic. This is, it's written in stone in, in science, you know, and that's, it's cool. Right. Right. So yeah, they, yeah. they auctioned off the naming rights to these animals in order to raise enough money to expand the reserve in which these snakes are found in. Uh, that's awesome. So that's really being proactive. This is what I really liked about it. They were proactive in, wanting to raise my protect these species were successful with it. And they not only engage the public with it, you know, getting people involved with discovery, naming of animals, but at the same time, you know, one of the achievements of being a research and explorer is naming an animal. And they, they yeah. gave that up yeah. in order to preserve that species. Yeah. And that just talks about the integrity of these researchers and how much they care about their preservation. So I liked this article for, so many different reasons. Oh yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a totally great point. Yeah, if like I discovered a species and I'm like, oh, you know, I want to name it Christus or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they they yeah, gave yeah. that up in order yeah. to preserve the species. Now that's looking at the big picture right. and really, you know, really going the distance. I was so impressed yeah. by that. Yeah, yeah. There see again, you know, there is a lot of, even though these some of these stories are are aren't great news, there's people like that out there that are, that are fighting hard, that realize what's going on and, you know, just snail eating snakes. There's a team of people out there 
fighting hard in Ecuador to save them. So that that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I guess I might as well just continue the trend, Jim. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the new species this week that I found, I usually like to try to find one that is still living. This one is extinct. Um, yeah, but it, it, I think it was, it was really cool. I, you know, looking and, and it's hard to find like, especially new mammals, like anything big or, right. You know, I think most of the big stuff has been discovered. It's going to be really, earth shattering if there's anything bigger than I think a pig ever found. Um, but this one was really cool, but it was a, the title of this one is new species of extinct ape discovered in tomb of ancient Chinese noblewoman. <laughs> so, oh boy. Yeah. Um, lady Z. Oh, how do I even say that? Lady Za X I A. I'm sorry. My, my Chinese isn't very good, but she was the grandmother of China's first emperor. And they found a bunch of animal bones in her, her crypt. And one of these they've discovered is a variety of gibbon that went extinct 2200 years ago. Or this is when her tomb, when she, they, they assume when she died was 2200 years ago. Okay. And yeah, there's no gibbons in China today, but there's hmm. a lot in their history of having gibbons within China. And so this one was actually a different species of gibbon. That's been lost to us in time. And they named it Junzi Imperialis. So that's the name of the, the species. Now, obviously it's extinct and, you know, we'll never know really what it looks like, but it's still pretty exciting because now we realize, okay, because I guess it gives us a, a better historical record of primates, these, these lesser great primates, lesser great apes, and also, you know, gives us insight into to how what drove them to extinction you right. know this isn't 20 china's yeah, yeah if you just say the history of china my god it's amazing very progressive society through much of you know human history but they didn't have automobiles 2200 years ago right, right? right i mean they didn't they didn't have a lot of the modern stuff that we had and for them to have the ability to to drive a species into extinction is kind of crazy you know Anyways, that was my species of the week. All right. Well, my species, again, we're, we're back in the ocean. Um, and this yeah. is uh, kind of tapping into my more nerdy side because yeah. scientists have recently uh, discovered a new species of hobbit shrimp, huh. um, which immediately caught my attention because I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. So yes, yes. anything token, I'm interested in combine my interests of that kind of stuff and then, yeah, yeah. you know, the nature. So. Chris, I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing some of these names, and I didn't do it in the last one either because I, I have no idea how to pronounce them, and I'd rather <laughs> not say it at all than yeah. butcher it. Like I feel like it's well, it's more disrespectful to say like I say it really poorly than say it at all. <laughs> I could I could try it because you sent me the article, and I'm looking at it right here. It's it's Odentania Odin, okay. Baganisi, yeah, Od- yeah, like Bilbo Baggins, right? Uh, well, I will. Gonna... I will totally let you say that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pass that on. I'll pass that on to you. Yeah, I usually practice for a while before we record because some of these names are really hard. But mm-hmm. Autotonia Baganisi, or you know, it's like Baggins, but it's Bagginsy. Bagginsy. That's right. probably what it is. It's probably Bagginsy. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. All right. So this new species of shrimp that they discovered, they found an expedition 
in some Indonesian islands. Um, and this actually took place in 2009. So this is a smaller uh, species of shrimp. Um, it's less than half an inch in length. And it's usually typically found around 90, 90 feet in deep of water. And so this is the interesting part. Not only does it have a fantastic name, and it gets its name as the Bilbo Baggins shrimp because all of its legs have small hairy protrusions stick, sticking out of it, much like yeah. the beloved hobbit. Um, yeah. It is found, um, doesn't live in a hole in the ground. It lives inside tunicates, which is a marine invertebrate, mm-hmm. also known as a sea squirt. Um, mm-hmm. And they have these sack-like bodies and pairs of tubular openings. Um, they're called siphons, and they draw in and expel water. So this shrimp resides inside of these sea squirts as a form of commensalism. Basically, the shrimp has a safe place to live um, and collect food from, but the sea squirt isn't harmed, but it also doesn't get anything out of it. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah, it's really cool looking. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely make sure. I always like uh, in our show notes on the website, again, allcreaturespod.com. It was kind of a thing we highlighted this week is I like to put the pictures of the new species. So I definitely will put that on. It's really cool looking and yeah, it's, it's New Zealand. I mean, that's what we're known for. That's what they filmed Lord of the Rings. And you know, before we started recording, I told you I'm about 30 minutes from Hobbiton. So, you know, at the, I live near the Shire, I guess you should say. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. Beautiful part of the country. And I'm going to get down to Mount Doom in a couple of weeks <laughs> where they film that. And then I know down in Wellington, our capital is where they filmed some of the, like the, the fight scenes. And then the South Island of New Zealand is very beautiful. That's where, uh, oh, the, the horse people, I forgot what they were called, um, live and uh, some of the other things. So yeah, New Zealand's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Need and, and you know this species of shrimp is new, but it's it's not the first um, species to be named after Tolkien characters. Uh, there are yeah. se- several other ones. There is a species of cave dwelling harvestman um, <laughs> named after Smeagol. Uh, yeah. There is a species of golden lizard named after Smog, uh, the yeah. dragon, and yeah. there is a species of subterranean spiders named after uh, Shelob, the giant spider. So oh, this, there's a rich tradition of paying respect to Tolkien characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, totally. Like, how awesome is that for him? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, or his his grandchildren now, I think. All right, Jim. Well, thanks for for coming in this week. I promise you, we'll do a week where there's just, like, fantastic news all over the place. (laughs) And I'll make sure. Okay, we're bringing Jim back on for all the feel-good stories. I mean, I I think the the take-home message today is, yeah, the news isn't always great. You made an awesome point. You know, the way we present it is important, but also... The good news is there are things we can do and the earth isn't ending. You know, we're not exploding all that stuff, but if we take steps, you know, carbon neutral lives, do these little things that everybody can do, you know, we're all going to do our part and spread the word. Education, I think is so huge, you know, so share this episode, share other episodes, get people excited, interested in conservation, and we can reverse a lot of these trends. Right. And be proactive. You know, go out there and do your part. It's not a huge, you know, life changing behavior to do. You know, the same way we all trained ourselves to carry our cell phones everywhere, because that wasn't a behavior at one point. We had to no, train yeah, ourselves yeah. to do that. Do the same thing with, you know, saying no to the straw or bring your own or bring your usable bags, because then we have more things to talk about. We, we have, we have more accomplishments to talk about because I think our accomplishments are right, just as yeah. important to highlight as, you know, the threats, what we're dealing with. Yeah. It's developing, you know, healthy habits for the environment. And like, mm-hmm. I, I remember a few pods ago, I was like, Angie, I for, keep forgetting my bags. 
Now I don't at all. It's a habit. Mm -hmm. You know, I get out of the car to go grocery shopping. I grab my bags. It's just, it's, it's instinct. It's natural. Yeah. You just got to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you asking me to do another episode with you because we need to do, you know, this week in good conservation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's good stuff going on. So thank you. Thank you. And, you know, we'll be back next week. You know, Angie should be back this weekend, uh, back to Florida. And we have an episode coming out on Tuesday. Uh, We'll be back next week with news. And then the following week, I know we've got a great species, a great interview. Uh, So anyways, take care and we'll be back. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. Talk to you soon.